Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back at you with the second part of our series about the holy undead. So in the last episode, we talked about uh, various tales of, of what, you, what you might call the pious or the holy undead. These would be ghosts, revenants, and zombies that don't seem to be purely demonic entities of the night, but instead they take part in activities that are considered by the people telling the tales to be wholesome and, and, and good. Uh, and in particular, these, these are undead that love going to church. And yet, <laughs> at the same time, they're not usually entirely benign. They retain this aura of menace. Sometimes they they offer ill omens to people, or sometimes they even uh, they, they go hands on and get a little violent. So, Rob, in the last episode, you told a wonderful story that was based on an old Swedish folktale called the Hooded Congregation, and this is a tale in which. A woman is awoken in the dark of night on Christmas, I think, or is it Christmas Eve? Uh, I believe it's uh, Christmas Eve slash early Christmas morning. Yeah, yeah. So, so there are church bells, and she hears them out in the dark. And then, so, uh, of course, the church bells are ringing. That means you need to go to church. So she goes to church, but she finds it full of hooded figures who are eventually revealed to be the undead, including her own dearly departed sister. And when when she discovers this, they attack, and she narrowly escapes. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun story, and it, uh, it, it, re- it relates to this, uh, this trend that we see in... Um, in, in, in Nordic traditions of these revenants, these these physical undead, um, these these corporeal undead that you can that can touch you, that can grab you, that you can wrestle and do battle with uh, if need be, and uh, yeah, in many cases they are they they are quite um, malevolent, but in in other cases they are they are almost benign, just attending church, going about their their business, doing church stuff. Um, as uh, the, uh, the, the, the the not quite rested dead are wont to do, right? And so we also ended up talking about a bunch of medieval ghost stories of of the pious undead that are translated and analyzed in a wonderful historical paper that we're going to continue talking about in this episode. And again, so the reference on this paper is that it's called Revenants, Resurrection, and Burnt Sacrifice uh, by a historian named Nancy Mandeville Cacciola, who is a medieval historian at University of California, San Diego. And this was published in 2014 in a journal called Preter Nature, Critical and Historical Studies on the Preternatural. And this paper focuses on stories told by a 10th to 11th century German bishop named Tietmar von Merseburg. And so around the year 1013 to 1018 or so, uh, Tietmar was writing an eight-volume historical text called The Chronicon, which was supposed to be about the glories of the Ottonian dynasty. And this was a series of Saxon Christian kings that he served under who were involved in conquering and Christianizing lands that previously belonged to various Slavic pagan peoples. Uh, so, so this was a sort of colonial frontier zone. And within recent memory, the former inhabitants of uh, one town within this zone had been massacred during a, a revolt of the locals. Uh, and so in, in the middle of this history, Tietmar goes into a digression about a story of the undead from this fortified town where there had been a massacre. This town was called Valsleben. 
And the story goes that there is a priest who arrives at church to sing matins. Matins is spelled M-A-T-I-N-S. That means like an early morning prayer. The medieval Catholics had a lot of interesting names for like the different prayers you would say at the different times of day. I don't remember them all, but there's like matins, there's lauds. Uh, I remember the, these are used uh, as sort of like a time delineation chapter headings in in the name of the rose, if I recall correctly. Um, but so he's there for matins, so the morning prayer. And, uh, and when he shows up at the church, he goes to the cemetery and he sees a multitude of dead people there. These are revenants and they are worshiping. They're making offerings to a revenant priest. And so the living priest who has just arrived, he makes the sign of the cross and then he walks through the crowd of the undead until he sees a woman he knows, one who had died just recently. And she asks him, hey, what are you doing here? He says, I'm here to sing matins. And she's like, well, you don't need to do that because we already did it. And then she's like, by the way, you're going to die soon. And then he did. (laughs) That's what Tietmar tells us. Uh, But then he also explains that the point of him relaying the story is to prove the truth of the Catholic doctrine of the resurrection of the dead in Christ, which he says that the formerly pagan Slavs do not understand very well. He thinks they need correcting on this subject. Though I also wonder sort of if this uh, persuasive framing, like I'm trying to prove the truth of the resurrection, if this persuasive apologetic framing is really the reason he tells these stories, because apparently after telling this first one, he digresses from his, from his history to just tell a bunch of other ghost stories, including an awesomely grisly tale that we're going to get to in just a bit. Yeah, you're right. It does make you wonder, is, is, is this about, um, about using the ghost stories to... Uh, uh, to support Christianity, or is it about finding an excuse to keep these ghost stories around just because they're really cool? Yeah, maybe he just wanted to tell them because he thought they were really fun, and then he's like, oh, I need a good reason to say I'm doing this. Well, actually, they prove that that Christianity is true. Yeah, and and I I don't want to say just fun, because, I mean, certainly ghost stories can be fun, but Mm. also ghost stories can be culturally important, and they are you know they they are part of one's cultural background, so there's there's an added incentive to to keep them around if at all possible because they are they are a part of your history. Yeah, and I think this is very much part of uh, something that that Cacciola is going to argue in this paper. Uh, but picking back up with that paper of hers, I want to go into some of the historical, cultural, and religious context that she explains to help us better understand what these stories might have meant in their in their time and place. So one thing she says is that during this period, religion and politics were deeply linked. Uh, German rule was self-consciously formulated as Christian rule, and the Ottonian dynasty mythologized themselves consciously as the so-called last world emperors. So they, they were thinking of themselves as... Uh, as great kings who would, by conquest, expand Christianity to the ends of the earth and thus bring about the second coming of Christ. Oh, wow. The last world emperors. I love that. That sounds sounds positively evil. Yeah. And, and so the funny thing, so uh, this is something that people might not realize, like they think, oh, people in the 20th century are always saying that the world, the end is coming soon, you know, they, this religious apocalypticism. It says, uh, I've, I've received a revelation from God, and I know finally the end is happening now. People in the 10th and 11th century thought this way, too. People all the time, throughout every century of, of, of Christian history, have thought that they were living in the end times. This is just a perennial phenomenon. Uh, but because of the linking of, of religion and politics here, the military expansion of the Autonians was also an expansion of the Catholic Church. 
So when they would go and establish fortified military outposts along the frontier, they were also establishing new bishoprics. They were establishing new footholds for the church. And so in the paper, Cacciola makes the argument that uh, though the uh, the Slavic rebellions against the, the German conquest and German power were, were obviously uh, – they would have had many uh, complex reasons for doing this. She does make the case that it really looks like one of those reasons was religious resistance, resistance to the Christianizing impulse of the Germans and protecting their traditional ancestral beliefs. Uh, so she writes as one example of this, quote, Centers of German power, which were, of course, also Christian religious centers, were targets for attack among these uh, Slavic revolts. Uh, continuing, this included the Cathedral of Havelberg and the and the Bishopric of Brandenburg, where the remains of the last bishop (parentheses Tietmar tells us he had been assassinated by his own flock) were dragged from his tomb and despoiled. The nunneries of Kalba and Hillersleben were also not spared, showing that institutions with predominantly religious rather than political associations were targeted as well. Hmm. So uh, this is some evidence that the, the, the Slavic rebellions against the Autonians, they were not just trying to protect their political autonomy, but they were also resisting the, the, the conversion impulse. They were saying, no, we like our religious beliefs. We'd like to keep them, please. Now, another thing that's worth clarifying is that talking about pagan Slavs of the region is a, a shorthand because, of course, this is not one monolithic culture with one monolithic religion, but rather a collection of different tribes with their own distinct cultures and beliefs. Uh, though it does seem that a general motivating factor for the tribal rebellions against the Saxon Autonians was defense of these pagan religious beliefs against the Christianization mission. And, uh, of course, paganism itself is not a, a religion, not one unified religion at this time. In this context, it simply means uh, any of the non-Abrahamic religions. So this would usually be uh, any kind of polytheism. And unfortunately, there's a lot we don't know about these pagan religious beliefs. Uh, there, there was uh, clearly plenty of diversity between them, though like many religions, they broadly seem to have included some elements of ancestor worship, as well as some common shared views about what constituted a good versus a bad death, and some similar beliefs about the afterlife. Now, another interesting thing about the, the political and religious history that here is that it's worth understanding that in, in this place and time, conversion, religious conversion, would almost necessarily be a somewhat flimsy concept. Mm -hmm. uh, people in lands conquered by, by Christians in the Middle Ages would often get baptized as Christians and then simply continue to practice their original pagan beliefs, either exclusively or alongside Christian worship. And one way, I think, to help understand this is that not all religions have exactly the same contours, sort of. They don't all make stake the same ground, right? Like, the, the role of Christianity versus the local paganisms was not a one-to-one -one comparison in, in a number of ways, uh, for example, the Catholic Church had organized dogmas and a concept of religious universality and exclusivity. So this is a religion that conceptualizes itself as the one religion that is true, and it should be the religion of the entire world. Uh, sometimes people who grow up in Christian societies assume that all religions are like this, with this belief in universality and exclusivity, but that's not at all true. Like most religions in history 
appear to have been much looser, more defined by ritual rather than belief, and without necessary ideas of universality or exclusivity. You know, we were talking about this just yesterday in the context of the Indiana Jones movies. The, the Indiana oh, yeah. Jones franchise accepts all religions and even uh, <laughs> and even uh, like like fringe uh, beliefs and uh, ancient aliens and what have you. Oh yeah, that's funny. That's one thing I, I kind of appreciate about it. It's got a sort of totalizing mythology, mm-hmm. uh, and maybe one that seems sort of geographically linked. So that it's like where, maybe when you go into a geographical area that has predominantly one religion, that that religion mainly applies within that geography. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in this region, Hebrew God is real. In this region, Shiva is real. Mm-hmm. Um, or was it Shiva or Kali? It's been so long since I've seen um, the second well, think, Indiana Jones film. I think Which, both. The second both one, that, that movie's got a lot of problems. But yeah, <laughs> Kali is sort of the bad guy in it, and Shiva's the good God in it. Okay. It's more complicated than that, though, folks. If, um, uh, so, yeah. so don't don't use uh, the second Indiana Jones movie as your, your guide uh, into the world of Hinduism. Um, but... Uh, uh, but still, I think it's an interesting point about the idea yeah, that in the Indiana Jones world, like all these faiths are real and they don't seem to exclude one another. Unless you say, well, that uh, the Egyptian gods, the Egyptian pantheon is kind of excluded from the uh, uh, all the happenings that go on in uh, Indiana Jones and the, uh, you know, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Well, do we know that for sure? We never see a contest of the gods there. Like the, the yeah. Pharaoh's magicians never, tr- we, we don't get to see what they can do. That's right. Uh, maybe they're just watching on. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're sleeping. Who knows? I know for one, I'm, I'm pretty certain uh, that there's, there's bound to be some sort of Indiana Jones-related media from comics or TV series or something that actually involves Egyptian gods. So if it's out there, uh, someone tell me about it. Well, I think one consequence of uh, the, the different types of uh, ground-staking games that are, that are being played by the different religions at this time means that for example, so the Christians might insist that you believe in no gods except the Christian Trinity, but many of the European polytheists at this time could simply incorporate new gods. So it's possible that they might well view a conversion to Christianity rather as a kind of incorporation exercise. So like we have our gods, we have our rituals, and now here's this other thing sort of added on top of that. And here's also Jesus and the Catholic Church. Mm, so it's kind of like this, it's almost like a chemical situation where the pre-existing religion uh, is more inclined to bond with, uh, with additives, uh, even though those additives are, uh, you know, tend to be, tend to have, uh, you know, exclusive ideas in them. Uh, you know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. When push comes to shove, uh, the polytheistic religion is going to absorb the, the monotheistic, uh, even if to some outsiders, it, it appears uh, in some cases that you've set aside the old ways. Right, yeah. So so Cacciolo writes that given these religious starting points, what you would probably expect to see at this place in time is not a just sort of exchange of the old gods for the new, but rather a sort of uh, what she calls an untidy syncretic admixture. You know, syncretism, again, is the, the mixing of religious beliefs, a sort of mixing and blending and hybridization process that would arrive at these new combinatorial beliefs. Um, and she gives us one interesting example of this. Uh, she talks about a, a text known as the uh, Merseburg Charms, 
quote, short rhythmic invocations of the Valkyries, Fol, Wodan, and Freya, composed in archaic German, but carefully transcribed onto a leaf of an otherwise entirely Christian manuscript found in the library of the Cathedral of Merseburg. <laughs> and then she has a great comment. It is pleasing to think that Tietmar himself might have encountered it. <laughs> And uh, and then, of course, when we drive home, something we've mentioned before on the show is that, of course, humans are capable of having multiple and conflicting um, beliefs and ideas, uh, uh, particularly as it pertains to the, you know, the origins of the world and the inner workings of the supernatural realm. So, uh, you know, we see that even today. I mean, many people who think that they are, you know, a, a, a pure subscriber to one particular brand of faith, if, if they're to self-analyze, they might find that they actually have some ideas from other other faiths and sort of non-faith origins sort of mixed up uh, mm -hmm. in their you know, supernatural understanding of the world. Or that the same one person actually quite easily switches gears between different belief systems depending on the context. Yeah. I mean, to come back to this example, perhaps perhaps you are uh, you know, a Christian when you're at the Christian church or in you know, walking among the Christian uh, gravestones, but then when you're in the woods or when you were, uh, you know, walking the shore, uh, then perhaps it's the, the older gods that call to you and this, uh, this other way of looking at the world. Or you could look at it as a night and day thing. That, that might yeah. come back. Yeah, yeah. So I think we should get back to Tietmar's ghost stories. Uh, and so the first place, I guess, would be to, to comment a little more on that first story, the one about the priest who arrives to sing matins and, and finds the congregation, the multitude of dead there, and they're making offerings to a dead priest. And then they, they t and then one of them is someone he knows, tells him, oh, uh -oh I think you're going to die soon. And then he does. Uh, so I wanted to go through a few observations about this story that, that Cacciola notes that are probably worth logging for when we look at the other ones. Uh, first, it's worth noting that instead of going to another plane of existence, in this story, the returned dead or the revenants, they hang out here on Earth. So they're not going off to heaven. This is where they live. They're, they're here on Earth, and this is where they do their business. Second, they are bodily reanimations, not insubstantial specters. This has come up several times already, but this is apparently common, especially throughout the uh, the, the pagan mythology of Northern Europe. That uh, you know, it's not just like a a, a gas-like ghost that forms an image that you could walk right through. These are undead with mass and heft; they can grab you. Yeah, they are the literal dead. They are you know decaying bodies and skeletons uh, going about their business. Another thing, so these dead are said to be, in the version of the story we get, faithful Christians who worship the Christian God even after death, which is an interesting thing because I think another common modern assumption that would be that like a oh, religion is something that people maybe need during life. You know, it's, it's in order specifically to prepare you for the afterlife. So there would be no need in the afterlife for people to continue doing religious practices. But here that, that assumption is clearly not on display. The dead also need to go to church. <laughs> and of course, in thinking about this, our mind can, can easily go to uh, Christian um, doctrines of, uh, of the, of the dead returning to life, uh, be it the resurrection of Christ um, after death, or um, uh, the idea that once we die, our bodies just kind of hang around for a while until a physical resurrection occurs at the end of time, um, which you, you can imagine how how that idea would um, 
would come to life if you had these pre-existing concepts of revenant spirits. Like, is my body just in the ground awaiting um, Christ's return? Well, what else is it doing? Is it going to church? Yeah. Or is it just lazy bones? This is something we mentioned uh, We mentioned last time. So, the Catholic teaching at the time emphasized the inertness of the dead body until the general resurrection at the second mm-hmm. coming of Christ. So, they, they, they would emphasize no... Until Jesus comes back, your body just stays there. It doesn't do anything. And so this is clearly in contradiction with that. And yet, this is also something we talked about in the previous episode. There appears to have been a pretty wide uh, uh, tolerance for various beliefs about the undead, even if they weren't, if there were beliefs about the undead that were not strictly in line with Catholic teaching. For some reason, this is an area of belief that the church did not seem to police very strongly and were broadly tolerant of people sort of coloring outside the lines on beliefs about the dead. Hmm. Uh, but to come back to Tietmar's first ghost story here, there there are some weird elements that are illuminating on top of the the more straightforward elements we just mentioned. Uh, first of all, so again, we, we notice that these dead are pious from a Christian po- point of view. They're going to church. They're worshiping God. And yet at the same time, they project uh, what Cacciola calls a strong aura of menace. Uh, that seems to be about right. These are not like happy, nice ghosts who are like, hey, sweet. You know, they're scary, and the priest is terrified of them. He has to do the sign of the cross before he can go in go in among the crowd. Mm-hmm. And then here's another interesting thing. I didn't notice this, but she points this out in, in the analysis. Not only is the priest given a true omen of his own impending death, that part's creepy enough, but more so his office has been usurped. They are performing the morning mass that he came there to do. They are doing the priest's job for him. So there's an interesting implied interplay of ideas here when when you look at what could have been the inputs. Number one, you'd have, okay, they're appearing in this Catholic church. And again, the Catholic doctrine emphasized the inertness of the dead body. So this is not really totally within the, you know, the central teachings of the church. And yet, obviously, here's, here's Tietmar, a Catholic bishop, recording this event. Um, and yet, it includes these elements that would seem to come from European paganism that had these sort of common sense ideas about what would lead somebody to get up out of their grave and walk around. And generally, uh, this would be associated with what would be considered a bad death. People who, say, died of like a painful or violent death or died young or died with unfinished business. Th- these are generally the kinds of people who were believed to have energy still left in them because they had something unresolved or they died too young and they would be the ones who'd be likely to get up out of their graves. Right. Another area being uh, the, the, the revenants of individuals who had not been buried properly. Uh, yeah. And during the Christian period, this becomes a case of had not been given a proper Christian burial. Right. So you're, you're combining these weird connotations of, uh, you know, beliefs that would traditionally say these are the kind of dead you should be worried about, the ones that get up and walk around, that, you know, there's something wrong with them. These are the bad dead, the dangerous dead. And yet here in this story, well, they're going to church, and that's nice. Um, and so Tietmar, again, he gives this uh, this persuasive framing where he says this story proves the Christian doctrine of the ultimate resurrection of the dead at the end of time. Though, I, to come back to uh, when I brought up earlier, I wonder if he's got other things in mind. I was actually kind of 
wondering about stories like this, if this is kind of the same logic as a lot of, say, 20th century exploitation movies, hmm. where they say, here's a movie with like lurid content that is playing to you know people's perverse interests and in seeing you know violence or sexuality or something, but couched as somehow educational or topical about important subject matter. You know what I mean? Yeah, like a, like an like an early anti drug film that is ultimately kind of a a celebration of excess around supposed drug doings. Yeah, like reefer madness or something. They're like, we're gonna get your heart racing with some with some kind of kind of scandalous content, but really this is all framed in showing you how how dangerous and bad marijuana is. Mm-hmm. But then again, I think about how I, I guess to be fair to Teetmore this story could be presented with both purposes at once. On one hand, it's just kind of a very fascinating, entertaining ghost story. And then on the other hand, it does, at least from his point of view, have this uh, persuasive power in in showing evidence of the possibility of the general resurrection. Uh, I, I think people often underestimate the importance of entertainment within religious education and preaching. I mean, what kind of preachers are the most effective? I personally would argue it's very often those who are the most entertaining to listen to that, that really keep your attention. How do you keep people's attention? You entertain them and having good ghost stories is one way to achieve that. Yeah. I mean, when I think of, um, of preachers that I've connected with the most, they, I mean, there, there are always stories to tell, right? I mean, there are always these Bible stories and scriptures to read and, in some cases, those scriptures are inherently interesting, and it, you know maybe it doesn't take much for a preacher to, to make something interesting out of it, to make a meal out of this particular scripture. Other times, the scripture can be, especially if you're following a, a calendar, uh, you know, and you're just this is the uh, one you have to preach on today. Some of those can be real dogs or, or real or real mountains to climb to try and make it relevant. Um, or interesting to an audience, but but a really good preacher can do that. They can they can find a way. Like maybe you're not just focusing on the story and the scripture, but you're t- you're telling a story uh, from your life and, and applying it to uh, you know the, the the truths or supposed truths in the scripture, that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, but totally. yeah, there's storytelling is is inherent to the whole whole process. When it's not there, you notice. Regarding this this uh, persuasive presentation or whatever, I think I've called it apologetic, persuasive, rhetorical, whatever it is that he's saying that he's telling the story to convince people of the resurrection, uh, Cacciola argues that this actually is uh, something that's plausibly important in the context because – uh, people like Tietmar and, uh, and and Catholics at the time, one of the things they mainly wanted to promote to the laity was the truth of life after death, uh, that there was apparently doubt that the afterlife existed and that this doubt was incredibly threatening to the church, that uh, it was perceived as one of the main things to, to fight off and be wary of were any doubts about the possibility of the afterlife or of resurrection. And so even if this story is kind of weird, like it doesn't really fit exactly with Catholic, Catholic doctrines about the afterlife or about the resurrection, it's close enough. At least there is resurrection. There is some kind of afterlife. And because there's this strong uh, impulse to just say, well, whatever it is, you just got to make pe- make sure people understand that it is possible to achieve immortality. There is life after physical death of the body, and that's good enough. 
Yeah, it's kind of like this is the point where the the, uh, the the salesman at the car dealership has convinced you that, yes, in theory, you would like a new car. You believe in the value of getting a new car. Now it's about convincing you that we need to get you in this car today. Right. Okay, so it's time, I think, to get to a couple of Tietmar's other stories, uh, which which are a lot of fun. So for, uh, there's also a thing where briefly he apparently says just – he recounts a few personal experiences. I think at one point he says he heard grunts coming out of a graveyard. <laughs> okay. I uh, thought that was good. Uh, but then there's a second tale he tells. So the second tale is much shorter, and then there's a, a tremendous third one. The second one takes place in the yard of Magdeburg's Merchant's Church. And it's spooky, but not as wild as the first or third. So I'll just read directly Cacciola's translation of the story. During my time in Magdeburg, the guards of the merchant's church, while keeping watch at night, experienced by sight and by hearing phenomena similar to what I have described. So they brought some of the foremost citizens. Having set themselves at a far distance from the cadaver cemetery, they watched as lights were placed in the candelabras, and then they faintly heard two parts singing the invitatory and completing all the morning lauds in proper order. However, afterward, when they approached, they discovered nothing. This one's interesting because this sounds more like the kind of ghost stories you hear people talk about today. It's like something seen very faintly at a distance and heard in an uncertain way. Yeah, just as as an example of someone saying, hey, uh, sometimes we see strange lights. Or I've heard that that sometimes they see strange lights in the the graveyard. And and that's that's enough. Like that, just the idea of that occurring and the idea that there are accounts of that are are enough to uh, tickle the imagination. Okay, but time for the third tale. This is the real barn burner. Okay, let's do it. So this one is a story that Tietmar says he heard from his niece Bridget. Uh, about something that happened in Utrecht. So I love that we're getting niece stories now. Again, from the translation in, in, in the Cacciola's paper. Quote, The next day I told my niece Bridget about the episode in Magdeburg, and I received this reply from her. During the 80 years or more when the great man Baldric held the Holy See of Utrecht, he renovated a church that had fallen into ruin from old age in a place called Deventer. He consecrated it and commended it to the care of one of his priests. One day, when the priest was going to the church very early in the morning, he saw dead people in the church and cemetery making offerings, and he heard them singing. The priest informed the bishop immediately. He was ordered by the latter to sleep in the church, but the next night he was thrown out by the dead along with the bed he lay on. First of all, man, this bishop is a tyrant. Is oh, there's dead people in the church. Well, you got to sleep in there now. But then they just they just threw him out, which is kind of nice. You know, they just they just threw, they evicted him from the church. This is the, the eviction of the living dead here. That's nice. Yeah, get the heck out of here. They just threw him out and the bed he lay on. But then mm-hmm. it goes on. Terrified on account of what had happened, the priest again complained to his superior about these things, but the latter ordered that he should cross himself with saints' relics and be sprinkled with holy water, but on no account cease guarding the church. The priest followed the bishop's command, tried to sleep in the church again, but he was struck with terror and so lay wide awake and watchful. And behold, at the accustomed hour the dead arrived. They picked him up. They placed him upon the altar, and they incinerated his body with fire down to a fine ash. 
When the bishop heard about this, he ordered a three-day fast to be held for the succor of the dead man's soul. I could say much more, my son, about all these things if my illness did not prevent me. As day is to the living, so night is conceded to the dead. Mm. Uh, so, and there's that line we talked about last time. Actually, I guess this means I may have falsely attributed that to, to Tietmar when he was actually quoting Bridget. Mm. Well, this this is a great story. Um, and and there, uh, there are apparently variations of this as well. That um, uh, Camellia Christensen uh, blog post from uh, legendsofthenorth.com um, she shares one variation from Lapland, which involves a priest who dares to venture into the church uh, during the midnight mass of the dead. And uh, he, he even gets up in front and begins preaching a sermon to the dead. And I believe he's also protected, you know, or, or by various, uh, uh, you know, holy waters and, uh, and, and, and signs and so forth. But the dead don't care, and they, uh, they tear him apart, leaving only his intestines, quote, carefully swirled about the pillars. Whoa. Yeah, so that that's pretty. Uh, I mean, that that's that's above and beyond. I, I mean, I like the idea of them also just burning him on the altar, but just tearing him apart and decorating the place with his intestines like their their garlands. Uh, that's also pretty nice. Well, one's more Wicker Man and one's more Splatterpunk. Yeah. Now, one thing worth noticing about this tale, which is fun, is as far as I can tell, this third tale has no living witnesses. So, how does anybody know this happened? Well, I guess they just found the ashes, right? They're oh, like, yeah. what happened? Well. <laughs> It burned they inferred up. the rest, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's true. Okay, I guess the only part they would really have to supply would be the order of events the night he gets burned. Yeah, I mean, it's possible that the living dead were framed, but otherwise we know the living dead hang out in here at night. They kicked him out last time, and this time we found him uh, burnt to a crisp. Hmm, probably the living dead again. Well, you know, another uh, thing that's interesting here, worth, worth noticing, is that the, the reanimated dead bodies... They take the priest, they don't just kill him, they burn him to a fine ash, meaning that Mm. he cannot be reanimated in bodily form like they can. Interesting, huh? And perhaps something similar is achieved by just tearing him to pieces and stringing him up all over the place. But there's a a whole uh, subsection of Cacciola's paper where uh, she makes a very interesting connection with this story, and it is this. Many of the uh, the European paganisms, and this probably would have been true of some of the Slavic paganism that, that predated the uh, the Christianizing mission of the Saxons here in this region, uh, a lot of these religions involved burnt offerings and sometimes probably burnt offerings of human beings. And so it's conceivable, uh, at least in, in Cacciola's presentation, that this story about taking the priest – now notice they don't just kill him. They put him on the altar and burn him, suggesting that this is a an, a deliberate form of worship, that the burning itself is worship to them. Uh, and so this is a sacrifice to the gods or to the ancestors. Uh, there might have been some blurring of the lines there in, in these pagan beliefs. And this, I think, further suggests that the story we're getting here is some kind of hybrid tale. This is a tale that may originally involve some kind of more Slavic pagan beliefs that involve burnt offerings and human sacrifices, and that it has been given a sort of Christian reframing to tame it. Hmm. Now, that's hard to know for sure, but um, it it does raise interesting questions. You might assume, okay, now if there were sort of these underlying pagan elements in this story that then has gotten this Christian window dressing, 
why would that be? I mean, is it just possibly that ghost stories are difficult to drive out of the culture? Something about them is too captivating and you you just find that you can't really pry them out of people's minds. So instead of trying to do that, what you might do is try to reframe it to, to make it somewhat Christian, give it a, a generally Christian texture, even if that leads to some sort of weird, contradictory or ambiguous elements, like the fact that the dead are pious and murderous at the same time. And then at least when you do it that way, it makes it easier to give it this uh, this persuasive framing that Tietmar does and say, see, the story that you believe, you know, the scary tale that that you believe about the dead rising and burning somebody at night, well, that just proves Christian doctrines anyway, at least sort of. And from here, there's a whole section in this article where uh, Cacciola gets into talking about stories from the period, uh, elements of these stories and other stories that are somewhat related that suggest that the dead, like the dead that we see, are not just sort of like only existing in the moments that they haunt us, and they're also not singly focused mindless zombies, but there is instead a sort of rich afterlife for the revenants, that they appear to have a whole functioning society of their own. Uh, like one weird detail, and there's a lot of stuff like this in these stories. One weird detail you might not notice at first is that back in the first story that Tietmar tells, the dead are said to be giving offerings to the priest. This suggests that the dead have possessions, that the dead have an economy, and this is consistent with other pagan-influenced medieval tales of the societies of the dead who are said to lead full lives. Uh, there's one story that she cites uh, that is in something called the Chronicle of Henry of Erfurt, where a dead man in the middle of the story is, is speaking to a living man and uh, or speaking to a living person. And he says, uh, we eat, we drink, we take wives, we have children, we arrange the weddings of our daughters and the marriages of our sons. We sow and we reap and various other things just as you do. Uh, but then we get the detail, except they don't do it down in town where everybody else do, does it. And they don't do it on the farms with all the living. They do it inside the mountain of Sirenberg instead of down among the living. Um, and, and there's even more. So the, there's weird stuff about how the dead are saying that they are, uh, that, that they procreate, right? That they have yeah. children and they have their children have weddings and stuff. And it's also said that they have wars with other neighboring communities of dead people. So there's like a separate world of geopolitics entirely among the dead. Yeah, like up there in the mountains, there's a mountain in which the uh, the, the good revenants reside, and there's one where the uh, the warlike revenants reside, and and inside you have these whole societies that yeah, where, where there's reproduction, even uh, undead babies being born and growing up to live full lives uh, underneath the mountain. Uh, uh, th this this was fascinating to me. I, w I wish I could have found out more about it. I was I was looking it up a little bit, and this is. Um, uh, this uh, this is actually this is modern day Zirenberg uh, in the German district of Casal. Uh, so it's uh, if you live in this area, uh, you can go up to the mountains and make inquiries for us and see if you can find these dead societies. Because this is usually so. I mean, we don't even really encounter this much in our um, our our, fan our modern fantasy world building, where you know there are plenty of people plowing away in the the realms of the undead, and uh, you know a lot of times, yeah, we don't we don't 
give much uh, we don't uh, we don't ascribe much in the way of culture to uh, to our, our fictionalized undead certainly not to the zombies but but then you see this sometimes with vampires where they'll be uh, we'll, we'll we'll get all in on, in on uh, like vampire societies and vampire kings and cultures and lords and so forth but even then you don't see a lot of like vampire nurseries and vampire babies going on you know yeah i i find it's Almost all of the visions of of life after death that I can think of present life after death as in some way of a kind of reduced richness. Like you might think that the closest thing you could think of to uh, the dead having rich lives like this would be, I don't know, in in, uh, Christian beliefs about like going to heaven or something. But even Mm -hmm. then, life has a kind of – life is said to be blissful and good and you enjoy God, but there's not – there's not like – much drama there. There's not like a lot of like, you know, politics and people falling in love and having children and all that. It it has a reduced level of complexity when compared to, to life here on earth. And that seems like it's always true. Like if you go back to old stories, uh, you know, pre-Christian ideas of the afterlife, like in, uh, uh, in the Odyssey, when when Odysseus goes and he hears about what what is life like in in the afterlife, it sounds like it's it's crappy. You know, everybody's just like, well, there's not mu- nothing much to do. Uh, like it is that reduced level of richness. It sounds gloomy and kind of like your brain isn't really there. It's kind of kind of a fog of eternity. I think, unless I'm mistaken, it's described that way in the Epic of Gilgamesh. That once a man is dead, it says he he just sort of like lies down among the dust and he eats dirt or something. Yeah, so you're either doing that or it's like hell is a place where you're just always screaming or heaven is a place where you're just always beaming and smiling. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, not 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 often a lot of uh, added complexity. I mean, I guess there are versions where, hey, you're in heaven. Would you like to come back as a as an angel and uh, talk people off of bridges? Well, you can do that. Or, or I guess there are also some variations where it's like, hey, you're in hell, um, but we have a we have a whole system here and you can level up uh, if you if you work hard. <laughs> you can I level guess. up, yeah. <laughs> Um, the, the, the only what examples that spawn or something, um, I was actually thinking about, um, Alan Moore's run on swamp thing. There's this whole plot oh, okay. where the evil Dr. Anton Arcane has, his soul has gone to hell, but he's just so evil that he, he works his way up through the ranks and eventually mm-hmm. gets a place of power again. He's a real go-getter. Yeah, yeah, he is. Um, as far as like the undead reproduction, the only fictional examples that come to mind are, are first of all, the Crypt Keeper, where in which there is one episode of Tales for the Crypt where we're given his backstory and we find out that his mom is a mummy. Uh, so his mom is a reanimated <laughs> corpse, but his dad is a like two-faced um, circus mutant. Uh, kind of a situation. Uh, mm. So there's that. And, um, and oh, also, speaking of mummies, may, maybe Egyptian afterlife has a sort of has a oh, lifelike well, yes. level of richness and complexity. Oh, That's very one. much so. Yes, it, yeah. it, certainly we can't forget that. If you're looking at um, the, the Egyptian afterlife, the Egyptian afterlife is an idea where you are going into an entire world where you will need resources, you will mm-hmm. need spells, you will have to navigate uh, various obstacles and enemies. Uh, it's yeah. The Egyptian afterlife is a strong example to bring up, for sure. Yeah. The other undead example that comes to mind, though, is that uh, I believe that now in two different zombie films, uh, director Zack Snyder has betrayed a a strong interest in zombie reproduction. He seems to really into the idea (laughs) of of zombie um, newborns and so forth. So, um, I don't know. Take that take that for uh, as you will. I don't know. Uh, If if he makes another zombie film, maybe he'll expand on that. Yeah, we... We can only hope.
All right, but you know enough about about uh, zombie movies. Let's get back to Christmas stuff. Okay, that's that's what people want to hear about. And uh, and indeed, I want to come back to the idea of Yuletide revenants, uh, Christmas zombies. I was reading The Ghosts of Christmas Past by Sarah Hoffman. This was published in 2018 by the Institute of European and Mediterranean Archaeology in uh, the Chronica Journal. Uh, the paper centers on local customs and beliefs about the dead and the Catholic Church of St. Nicholas uh, on and, and near the island of Hafjarari in Iceland. Uh, so this is off the western coast of Iceland, north of, uh, of Reykjavik, but not, not far uh, off the coast. It can be reached by boat or over the frozen ice. Mm. So the church and cemetery here served as a major funerary and burial destination for a large portion of Western Iceland from about 1200 to 1563. Uh, then the church and cemetery were both closed during the Lutheran Reformation and the island was abandoned. Now, the author here notes that um, you know, when we talk about the, the Lutheran Reformation, like this was a, this was a, a time of, of, of great change um, and an often violent change. She notes that the last Catholic bishop of, in Iceland, uh, John Arson, was executed by beheading in 1550 during the height of the Lutheran Reformation. Uh, so after this took place, after this place was abandoned, uh, stories uh, about the island and about the church and the graveyard there, they, they, they kind of dealt with the abandonment in different ways, both to reinforce the, the abandonment and to excuse it by turning the island into a kind of forsaken and dangerous place. And this comes to involve revenants, of course. Uh, Hoffman uh, naturally discusses the corporeal nature of, uh, of these undead. Quote, these restless dead often emerge as a result of improper death or unfinished business, frequently overlapping with Christmas or Yuletide. Hmm. So, uh, remember, we, we've already gone through a few different examples, but even that uh, example from the Gretis saga, um, uh, that uh, where we have the, you know, the battle, the wrestling match against the, the undead beast with the moon in its eyes, that takes place at Christmas as well, uh, as well. And she points out that most of these tales take place during a festival of transition, uh, you know, in, in this example, Christmas or Yuletide, and are often set during uh, a time period of transition, in this case, transition to uh, either transition to Christianity or transition from uh, Catholicism uh, to uh, a Protestant faith. Mm. And um, in, in, the, in cases of where it's like a Christian pagan uh, situation, we often see the Christian heroes are the ones that are usually the individuals who are able to bring some sort of finality to this disruption involving the undead. However, she does uh, share a tale in which the new religion does not seem to be enough. Uh, quote, in the story of the deacon of, of Mirka, a deacon of, of Ejeforder fell in love with a woman named Gudrun, who lived on the opposite shore of a fjord valley. One day near Christmas, the deacon attempted to cross the frozen river to meet his beloved, only to fall through the ice to his death. His ghost returned to torment Gudrun uh, for two weeks, and while a priest was unable to help, a sorcerer, quote, skilled in witchcraft, finally managed to exorcise the ghost. Huh. This is interesting because I um, I remember from years ago when I visited Iceland, a story about a, a story uh, from somewhere I went about a guy who died trying to cross a river to see his beloved. Uh, mm. but, I wonder, but I don't think it was in a fjord valley. I think it was more inland. So maybe there are just multiple stories like that. 
I think so. Uh, based on what uh, the author here shares, uh, you, there are a few key th- things here. First of all, when we're talking, uh, first of all, we're, t- we're dealing with a part of the world in which, yes, the bodies of water will freeze and you can cross them on foot, but there's always the possibility that you will break through and then you're in the water, uh, the chilling water, uh, and you may drown. And then drowning, uh, especially when you're dealing with uh, death at sea, uh, this is said to leave one in a state uh, stuck between worlds. Uh, mm-hmm. So there are a lot of tales involving drowned revenants. In fact, we already shared one in the first episode about the, uh, the guys going to the feast and showing up anyway, even though their boat um, uh, you know, wrecked and they drowned on the way. Um, so uh, this, you know, the, the idea that those who die in the water are especially prone to return. And we actually see this in one of the tales told to affirm the cursed nature of this particular church, this abandoned church. Uh, the account says that on Christmas Eve in 1563, the priest and parishioners of the church were walking back to their farms over the frozen tidal flat. So they were bro- walking back to the mainland essentially from this island. Mm -hmm. And what happened? Well, the ice broke halfway and everyone drowned. Uh, So the the entire church drowns in the water. And of course, by virtue of that, they are going to be lost souls. Now, um, uh, the the author adds here that the waters off the coast were, were dangerous and it was apparently common enough to discover human bodies washed upon the shore from shipwrecks. And, uh, and many of these were even, as an, as an added note, they were, occur- they were said to have occurred on Christmas. So you'd be out on Christmas Day, and then here are uh, bodies washed up on the shore. And if you were to find these bodies, it's your personal responsibility uh, to help those bodies uh, have a proper Christian burial. Otherwise, you're going to be cursed, and the revenant will follow you uh, till the end of your days, uh, which reminds me of that, uh, that account of the, the moonlight in the eyes of the undead creature that Greta the strong battles, and how he's essentially uh, you know, just shaken for the rest of his life because he saw it. But uh, uh, anyway, but the, the idea of this, the story of the lost congregation drowned in the ice, um, it, was com- it was apparently compounded because after the church's abandonment, the church decayed. But not only that, the burial grounds eroded. And when burial grounds erode, uh, what happens? Well, the dead appear to rise. The dead are revealed. Ooh. And this ended up requiring several waves of reburial, uh, you know, people having to, to go out and make sure that these bodies were given a, a, a proper burial again so that they might rest. But the, the, the tale, uh, as the author, uh, the point they're making is that you have stories like this that were about sort of giving a reason why the place was abandoned. Well, it's an evil place. It's cursed. The dead are coming up through the ground. Um, mm-hmm. But also it's kind of compounding this idea that like the, the people of the church were, were abandoned, that they're, uh, you know, it's, it's a part of like making sense of, of people lost during a time of transition. Um, not only a transition between, you know, one land and another, you know, between uh, uh, while they're crossing of, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the bay here, um, or crossing a frozen body of water, but also like lost in this transition between Catholicism and uh, and Protestantism. You know, this is making me think of one last way to maybe interpret the uh, the, the apparent contradiction in these stories of the church going undead. These uh, you know these lost beings that are at the same time doing something that is apparently good and holy, but then also they are menacing. Which is that, uh, and again, this would connect to the you know the kinds of lives lit, led under the mountain of Sirenberg as well. That that just conveys complexity, like that mm-hmm. um, 
you know, there's a kind of confusion, ambiguity, and complexity to real life as well. People, there are tons of people who subscribe to whatever religion you think is the right one, and and you would think it is good when they go and worship in that religion, and then they also probably will turn around in some cases and be menacing and threatening and terrifying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, the, the, yeah. The idea of the, uh, the the churchgoers turning around and attacking you—I mean, that may that may well track with with uh, with, uh, with some of your experiences with uh, the uh, with living congregations. So, um, you know, it's. Uh, I think ultimately, yeah, I think one of the things to take away from this is that these stories are you know, do have a complexity to them. They're, they're probably saying multiple things. They're kept around. They're well, not only kept around, but they're, you know, intentionally kept around uh, because they fulfill various uh, purposes in life, uh, explaining things, um, making excuses for things. Um, and also like, and also just like keeping, keeping occurrences alive too. Like, you know, we, we, what is literally the idea of a haunting? You know, it's the idea that the, the dead won't completely rest and they keep saying something or they keep appearing. And, and, and sometimes it seems that's a, it's about, you know, it, it's obviously more about the living. Like we won't let those dead rest and we have stories about them uh, to, to help them stay alive. Yes, in the same way that we probably wouldn't embrace revenant realism, but you can mm-hmm. certainly imagine how if you do find a body uh, washed up on the shore, it's a dead person, and you see it, and you do nothing about it, that may well follow you for the rest of your life in your brain. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and I think the same could probably be, be said to be true about these tales. You know, People are probably not getting up out of their graves to go to church at night, but it is reflecting some kind of lingering unresolved anxieties within, say, these frontier lands and in, in, in the process of Christianizing a continent uh, where, where where people have memories of the past and fears that they can't really face, and these come through in the form of narratives that have strange contradictions within them. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and close out there, but uh, we'd love to hear from everyone. Uh, if you've, you've heard other variations of these tales of church-going revenants, uh, write in, let us know, you know especially if you, have, uh, if, if you live in or have connections to some of the parts of the world that we've specifically discussed in these episodes. Uh, also, I have to say, I looked around, I was, I was hoping I could find some examples from other cultures where you have either a corporeal or non-corporeal entity that is, uh, you know, going to a church or a temple and engaging in some sort of pious activity. And um, I, I'm, 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 surely I missed something, but I wasn't able to find anything. I found plenty of examples of various spirits that were there to sort of maliciously punish those who were, uh, who were engaging in impiety, uh, you know, that, that, uh, that were, you know, disgracing a temple or a church, that sort of thing, or mischief makers, you know, um, uh, demons or angels that make, um, you know, uh, monks fart during the, uh, 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 you know, d- during a mass or something. But uh, yeah, I wasn't find, able to find anything that really stacks up with this idea of the, of the pious undead. But if, if if I'm missing something, and surely I am, then I would love to hear about them. So write in, let us know. Yeah, I bet that exists. In the me, uh, yeah, because I mean, there's so. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of wonderful undead uh, examples from around the world. I was running across plenty that were interesting in their own right. You know, various things raised by sorcerers and wizards and and witches, things, um, you know, various ghosts, yokai, and so forth. But uh, yeah, no, nothing that really matched up with what we were talking about here. But like I say, if I missed it, write in and let us know. 
In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you'll find core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, artifact episodes on Wednesday, listener mail on Mondays, and on Friday we do Weird House Cinema. That's uh, our time to set most serious concerns aside and just focus on a strange or unusual film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.